Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp. In this episode, we return to the relationship of Walter Brueggemann, Trump makes uh, Nixon look like Mr. Rogers, Peter Block, All right, my friends, this is amazing. And John McKnight. And then we'll know whether I'm a prophet or a fool. (laughs) This conversation was recorded last Wednesday, and they discussed the current events surrounding racial justice and their role as three white men in the movement of this moment. It begins with John sharing his experience with the police in Chicago. In Chicago, we had a rogue police force. I would say this was in the 1950s. They just pick up people and beat them and throw them back out of the car. They were just outrageous. Every time a black family moved into a white block, there was a riot and they wouldn't do anything about it. So it's out of hand in all kinds of ways, not just in the black community, but you know, across the board. The police were caught protecting burglars. <laughs> <laughs> so that they wouldn't be apprehended as they burgled things and they got a cut. Finally, it was so bad, and they formed a committee to get new police superintendent. The head of the committee was a guy named Orlando Wilson, who was head of the criminology department at the University of California in Berkeley. The group persuaded him to come here and to become the police chief. In one half year, their support of riots in the neighborhood, their corruption in terms of arresting people for money, their protection of burglars all ended. And it ended because he was real smart. He knew what the police were about. He'd been one and then been in the military. And he had all kinds of ways of bringing that force back into order having the right person in charge. He was a professor at that time. His absolute autonomy over the local politics. He had undercover agents speeding on Lakeshore Drive in order to get arrested to see whether the officer would try to take a bribe from him. I do believe a real autonomous authority over the police can do an awful lot. That's just the police, so I doesn't deal with the racism problem. But I've seen a police department that was rotten to the core, cleaned up in six months. And I was the director of the ACLU, who is not the police's favorite group. <laughs> and he sent his assistant over to talk with me about what we thought were the issues and how he could support us and how we could support him. I'm on my little neighborhood council. And so a city councilman came to talk about what's happening in the city, all the cutbacks. I asked him, the city just dedicated $34 million of public money to the construction of a soccer stadium. Why can't we have access to that money to care for the city? And he says, well, that's a different box. The manipulation of capital, I think, is a big undervalued story. I don't know what to think about the police, but I don't think they're much of a player in the poverty and the rage. They're obviously a problem and we need the criminologists in every city. I think of everything we talk about having to do with capital and money, economics, but it doesn't have the same draw. It doesn't get the same attention. I also think that I got a text from my granddaughter who's 19, who thought she was going to Georgetown next year. And who knows what the university is going to do. 
And she just said that all over social media, her age group is outraged, sorrowful. She just wants me, her grandfather, to know they're going to do everything they can to make this better. She went to a Episcopal Academy, which is worse than it sounds. My daughter, when I saw it before my first grandchild went, what do you think, Dad? I said, it's the best that money can buy. <laughs> and, and then Gracie today said that a bunch of the recent alumni are writing a letter to Episcopal Academy, being particular about the nature of racism in that institution. So I think the protests will activate the changes that the pandemic held as possible. The seeds of departure are well sown. One other thing I've been thinking about, this relates, of course, to our faculty at the ABCD Institute. One of the things over the years that I've felt often is uh, in this kind of a situation, who, sh who should be the lead? And I tend to think the people who are affected. So it is interesting to know what the people who are affected say needs to be done, in particular, not general concerns. So I checked a day ago under Black Lives Matter, and there's a group here in Chicago. They have apparently compiled, I think it isn't just Chicago, I think nationally, 10 demands. I thought it was pretty interesting to look at those demands, and you might want to do that as well. They're not the usual kinds of demands. Some are, but most aren't. But a part of what this is, is listening. It doesn't make any difference if I get something changed that isn't what people who are affected think needs to be changed. I think listening to voices that have something definitely to do is important. And, and, and that's an interesting list, so you might want to look at it. In this clergy conversation yesterday with 55 of them, it was special for them because the white and black clergy don't usually meet together. One question was, what can white people do? And they were talking to each other, not just me. They said, one is put a black Jesus on your altar. Pretty interesting. Another is read black pr prayers, uh, read black poetry, and then put up some money. Resource sharing, they call it, because they're genteel. I went to a funeral with Monica last summer. She designed the funeral. All the images of Jesus were black. Pretty powerful. I think in a broadest sense, people who are out there protesting, who are, are black or brown, are protesting not just about police, but the police are the trigger. <laughs> They're not the gun. <laughs> and they have uh, all kinds of experiences that grow out of inequity. The inequity that strikes me over the last 10, 15 years as being the greatest is, is wealth. 70% of white people own property and 30% of black people own property. And at least from an economist's point of view, that wealth measure is about the greatest disparity that you can show. And it's been true for a long time. I think I first saw that 25 years ago or something. It's not that hard to answer. To start acquiring land. I think okay. there's enormous capital uh, available, but people with wealth don't know what to do with it because they're worn out on the old solutions. They don't want to get caught up in the left-right foolishness. They don't want to get engaged in the argument about hourly wages, minimum pay, more clinics in poor neighborhoods, more fundraisers for social service complex. If the three of us went to them, St. Louis and Chicago and Cincinnati, 
where we had some connections that we we're going to start a land conservancy and we need to raise $10 million and we need to go to the uh, Port Authority who has, I don't know, like five or 6,000 pieces of land that the city said were worthless and needed future development. It's one of those boxes of have manipulated. Yep. Mm-hmm. And said, so we want you to give us uh, 500 of those properties for a dollar. If people wanted to do something, that's available. There's 11 common land conservancies just in Cincinnati. Nobody's associated control of the land with wealth disparity. Even the affordable housing people, the yeah. people who can make all the money are the people building the houses. We could start a black contractors institute here. So I think the pieces are kind of there. It's just that I don't know where the imagination comes. Even the enterprise, I'm on the Cincinnati Access Fund. And we've got, got $2 million in the city. And we spent two years and couldn't find the right black enterprise to loan it to. Didn't meet the credit criteria, the history criteria, the cash excess criteria. Group here started a black emergency firm for black businesses. This is three weeks ago. They called me and they said, are you willing to take the funding and give it to Derek and the African-American Chamber? I said, absolutely. Great. We don't care. I don't give a shit what their credit is. And then the city comes back and says, well, if we can't take it out of the box it was designed for, unless... LISC, which is the National Help Develop Neighborhood Organization, gets their national lawyers to agree to this and that. That's why the manipulation of capital, land, banks, that's who I want to organize around. I'm getting this from Damon. He's my teacher. Damon's been giving speeches about this for two years. I contracted with a writer, put those speeches into a pamphlet. Yesterday after this meeting, I called Dave and I said, do you mind if we publish your vision? And he's all about owning land, owning enterprise. His church moved from the city out to 20 acres. And so in a small way, he's doing that. He's got 11 businesses housed in his church. My axe to grind, which is long-term and not very helpful, is that pastors have to learn to read the Bible differently as a tract about economy. Not many pastors know how to do that. What's been the response to that stance on yours? What have you gotten back from that belief, that acts? I think people resonate with it, but then they don't follow through with it because it really is a retooling that takes some intentional work. That doesn't happen very much. What role do the overarching institutions, the conferences, the play in this? The ones I know are so preoccupied with survival, economic survival themselves, they don't have any energy left to do that work. So it's like moving the chairs around. You know, the other piece that we haven't mentioned that I think is uh, up there in the one, two, three level of a reasonable future is unions. That's the way you can change more even than federal laws. So somehow in this equation, the association of workers needs to be, in my mind, revitalized. This question of wealth and worker power, those are the two that I invest in. And I hope if Biden gets in, there's a revolution in changing all those federal laws that have made it hard for unions to organize. Throughout all of the people who don't get decent money in our society, wealth is one thing in in terms of property, but the other thing is income. You know, I'm for a guaranteed annual income, and I think we may get some kind of a four, but it'll be inadequate. I would invest in a revived effort to unionize. It's giving people control over their financial life. And just like in the black culture, if you get displaced every 10 years, how do you create a neighborhood? How do you create a culture, a memory, all the things you want? And if you're a worker and you're moved around like a pawn, you're commodified, 
the economic system isn't just about land, it's just reframing the whole storyline. And this is what the church could do. Yeah. Forget about their money. The church should come out and say that the basis for the current economy, Christ would be against it. The whole assumption of competition, acquisition, we both expressed that a thousand ways. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. Taking a cue from Peter, we wanted to bring you a poem by Jericho Brown. It's called Four Day in the Morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue. I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy. But I'd love to wake that bastard up at 4 day in the morning, toss him in a truck and drive him under God, past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go to work for whatever they want. A house? A boy to keep the lawn cut? Some color in the yard? My God, we leave things green. Now, back to the conversation. We don't have a Martin Luther King. So the voice of a higher value, of values, of, of morality, uh, is lost. In, I mean, there are people talk about it, but a national sense that we're rising to a new order. That voice sort of missing. Somebody asked me in yoga class this morning, gee, Peter, since I'm always the oldest one in class, have you ever seen anything like this before? Talking about the pandemic. And I said, well, actually, I remember World War II. And I, I was five, six, four, whatever. We pulled down our blinds every night. There was a nine o'clock curfew every night. We rolled up aluminum foil. We ate parts of the cow that nobody wanted to eat. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and this went on for years. My father had, with his brothers, had a little business making the kitchen cabinets. And they were told by the government to make engine parts. And all these things was reenacted with this pandemic. And then I thought, and I said, the one difference was that nationally, we had somebody we could trust. You remember them better than I do. Fireside chats. Oh, Roosevelt, I loved them. And he spoke for the common good. Let's pull together now. What you said, John, is where is this national, powerful, perhaps black, moral voice? It's just the context is so different. Why do you think there isn't one, John or Walt, either one of you? If I think about theology, for example, Randall Niebuhr was the dominant voice. And now it's so democratized that nobody has a chance to be that single dominant figure like that. I just think that the change in media and the whole uh, complexity of communication just kind of makes that impossible, I think. 
It's like a, a silencing effect. Or the dispersion, many voices that diffuses the authority that you could have if you had an identifiable voice. One of my memories of the war in the third grade, big uh, pressure to buy defense stamps and defense bonds. And every Friday afternoon we have an assembly and the kid that had bought the most stamps or bonds got to lead the band. It was always the same three kids. Rich parents. <laughs> I felt so left out. I can remember being hustled for a Girl Scout cookie sales so my daughters could get some privilege. And we end up with all these goddamn boxes of cookies. <laughs> Another element here is we're talking about leadership. I knew a young lawyer in uh, Gary, Indiana, was doing some things with him. His name was Richard Hatcher. And he was the first elected black mayor of a, a city of any size, probably in the mid-60s. And at that time, one of the biggest things was that we needed to have people of color in charge of the instruments of public power. There has been, in that regard, a really significant change. And you can see it here in Chicago with the mayor here, probably the best mayor I've seen ever since I've lived here. You know, she was speaking on television last night and, and you could see the frustration, the sense of her inability to come to grips within the black community, those things that made a real difference. I had a lot of faith in that back in the 60s, right? And I don't think it's proven out much. In a way, the system somehow hobbles, is too immovable, or the kind of people who are Black who reach the bearship are people who've been vetted by white people. I've been pretty disappointed there, and I I could see that in in her face last night. I remember I had a student was sort of out of a middle-class family. And she went to a rally where Malcolm X was speaking in Chicago. And I saw her afterwards and I said, how was it? She says, it's changed my life. She says, what I realized was, you know, he, he was uh, at that time profiled as anti-white, uh, the devil. He was not speaking against white people. He was speaking against the white people inside of black people. I've never forgotten that. I don't know. The thing about leadership is interesting. How do you evoke that? How do you find it? What about Old Testament? What were the conditions that allowed leaders to come forward? I don't know who your favorite leaders are besides Moses. We, we don't know anything about the history of Moses, but when you think about uh, Obama being raised white and all that, the, the story suggests that Moses was raised an Egyptian and then he returned uh, to be with his own people. So maybe it's the same kind of uh, uh, bifocal. I've never thought of that. I suspect you have to be bilingual in some way. I think, Walter, you're right also about the change in the culture brought on by the media chops everything up in every way you can imagine, in time, in interest, in the rapidity with which anything has to happen, that it has any meaning. And that is where leaders uh, can't appear. It's hard to have a sustained narrative. Yeah, that's the right word, sustaining. Everything seems to me to be broken into pieces. The technical term is asynchronous living. It's like being immortal. The Greek gods, because they would live forever, they did nothing. And now that I can look up anything forever, I do nothing. The one exception is a guy named Van Jones, who's a commentator on CNN from Oakland. 
I don't know why he isn't a national leader yet. He's got the visibility. He's on CNN all the time. He is able to be bilingual. You know, he can talk both sides. He's not cantankerous. He holds his ground. He came to Cincinnati. I heard him talk. I don't know. It probably have to be a media person, you say, to sustain the energy. And the fact there is no church voice now. It's all right wing, I would guess. We're having a conversation with David Corton coming up June 16th, John. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I know him a little bit, and Charles Holmes knows him very well. And I got a note today from a woman named Susan. She says, in this day and age, how can you offer a conversation with four white men? Yeah. I just wrote back, good point. Thanks for writing. But it is an interesting question. What role do we have to play in this moment? You know, with our own constituencies, or maybe we should put out something. And we have three, you know, three little audiences going. I was very impressed by the clergy yesterday, how committed they were and how helpless it seemed. They don't have the leadership that they need. People like Damon won't take it. The main thing back in the Alinsky organizing days was to convince people who had lived under, you know, the South, Jim Crow, and then the kind of repression they ex experienced here, they had some power. You could, I mean, that's a basic question in the neighborhoods. You couldn't overcome that as an organizer. You're dead. I mean, you've got to convince people. They do have power. And this kind of imperiled sense that you see, for instance, that you just talked about, but I know a lot of other imperiled senses around, maybe the question is, what is it that will lead us to see what power we have? if we would use it. Why is a committed church sitting there imperiled, inactive, really? Yeah, yeah. What, what calls people now? At the block level, that's the stuff I'm learning more and more. What is it that people will respond to? If we had real national leadership, they would be calling us. I just see a huge possibility, but an incredible passivity in which people, I think they really don't have any power. And that means you don't live in a democracy. You're going to lose it. I want to read you. This is my granddaughter. I'm currently writing something up and working with a black student from this Episcopal Academy to mm -hmm. release a statement with my name on it. Because she wrote, so me another letter from Episcopal students, but everybody signed their name anonymous. <laughs> so I wrote back, I said, Gracie, are you gonna write something with your name on it? And she said, it is sad but true that yeah, hearing yeah. from a white girl is gonna get more attention at Episcopal Academy than from 10 minority students. Beautiful insight, yeah. Well, I think that's agency. She went from, oh, I signed a letter. I think that they're writing a letter. Now she's writing a letter. But you're right, John. The purpose of the neighborhood is to produce agency. We've always said that. That's right. In the face of transformational suffering that's happening in our country right now, notice how it feels to hear Peter say, you have agency. And with that in mind, is there one step, however small, that you can take today to activate agency in yourself and your spheres of influence? Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.